So I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, which is our series of studies at this time. And comes the story of uh, Sarai and Hagar. Remember chapter 15 was uh, a, a story of promise, a wonderful promise of God's covenant promise. Uh, but now we come to a, a chapter where things go a little bit off-piste, as it were, <laughs> um, for Sarai and, and Abram. So uh, let's read uh, this short chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a, a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servants. That's a euphem- uh, Hebraic euphemism for uh, have intercourse with my servant. That it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude." And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild uh, donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber-Lahai-Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So in chapter 15, we saw uh, two things. Uh, Firstly, that the center of the life of a man or woman of God uh, is faith. Faith in the God who makes promises. And when that faith is present, 
that the person is counted as righteous before God, uh, in the sight of God. So that's the first thing. Faith is the central uh, experience of the man or woman of God. But the second um, uh, thing is the amazing faithfulness of God to his promises, which he, he commits to keeping on pain of his own death. Remember this, uh, the vision that Abraham had in chapter 15, uh, all the, the animals had to be cut into and laid out in a line, one half on one side, one half on the other. And uh, that flame of God, the torch of, uh, torch of God, travel between uh, the halves of the animals. And as, as though God is saying, may, may I die like these animals if I do not keep my promises. And so God was committing himself to the keeping of his, unilaterally, to the keeping of his promises. And it's because of that that we know that when God makes a promise, he always keeps his promises. And so the covenants are vitally important for us to, to grasp as we uh, study the Bible. It's an amazing lesson for Abraham, an amazing lesson for us. And you might think that then, uh, after that experience, Abraham uh, would have that sense that he has, he has maybe made it. You know, he's, he's the bee's knees, the top, you know, he's a spiritual guy. And he's the top guy sort of thing. He's, he's walking on air. Uh, but you come to chapter 16, and things seem to go awry. Uh, here's, a, here's a quotation from J.C. Ryle. Do you remember the, uh, J.C. Ryle, uh, the 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, Anglican? And uh, he said, uh, the best of men are only men at their very best. Patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are sinners who need a saviour, holy, useful, honourable in their place, but sinners after all. This is what we see with Abraham. A sinner before God. For all experiences that we may have with God, for all that we may have learned, you and I, for all the ways that we have grown, the best of men or women are men or women at best before God. This chapter, I think, shows us this. A chapter of people wavering on the promises of God and as a result, all kinds of sins coming to the surface. And in the end, you know, there's something of a social mess that turns up. Uh, and Abraham and Sarai are no further forward than they were uh, when they started. But through it all, God remains faithful to his people. Even when we are unfaithful, God continually is faithful to his people. So first of all, what we see here is how our our desires can collide with God's sovereignty. How our desires can collide with God's sovereignty. Uh, This chapter takes place uh, ten years after the return to Canaan. So verse 3 uh, tells us that after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, uh, and so on. And, uh, and this chapter begins with a, a very pointed sentence. Uh, after all the joys of chapter 15, we get this verse 1. Sarai 
Abram's wife had borne him no children. It's, it's like, here's, here's the big issue under the, the, the elephant in the room for Abram and Sarai. The elephant in the room is, I have no, we have no children. How can, how can God keep all his promises when we have no children? And Sarai is now older. She's ten years older than when she first heard the promises. She's unable to have children, humanly speaking. And God has promised three times now that Abram will have children eventually. But they're ten years older. How's it going to happen? And what we're about to see in these first two verses are the desires of Sarai colliding with the sovereign purposes of God. Sarai wants this outcome of a child so badly, she really wants a child. And it's it's an understandable impulse, isn't it? Perhaps especially as you think about women in that culture. Perhaps less, it feels less of an issue for us today, but in women in that culture, to have your children was to gain significance in the sight of others. And that maternal drive is, is really powerful, even in an aging Sarai. But even this desire that she has must come within the, the orbit of the sovereignty of God. And the next half of the verse is quite, it's a little bit ominous, you think. You know, so she can, uh, uh, Abram is has born him no Abram no cho- sorry Sarah is born Abram no children, uh, and then she has a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. <laughs> Why is that mentioned? You think, oh, hang on, something strange is going to happen now. Why is Hagar brought into the picture? That uh, sounds quite ominous, and perhaps we can guess what's coming. Sarai goes to Abram about this servant. Uh, Hagar, behold now the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. She's still claiming possession of the child. That it will be my child by my servants. Now that may seem strange to us, but it's actually, it actually was a common custom amongst the people from whom Abram and Sarai originally came. Uh, they came from Ur of the Chaldeans and they stayed in Haran for a long time. Um, and then uh, that was a quite common thing to do. Uh, if, if your wife isn't bearing a ch- children, then uh, you conceive with the, the servants and they're considered part of the family. Um, that's the culture that Sarai and Abram have been brought up in. And so they, they naturally think that's the next thing to do. Of course, it's contrary to all that God has ever said about marriage, about families, about how he has established men and women together. Since the creation of Adam and Eve, that's, the idea has been that a single man and a single woman would become one flesh together. And they would produce children together. And they would be faithful to one another. Now, it's, it's instructive for us, I think, to to pay attention to Sarai's thinking here, um, because this is not simply a case of Sarai having a complete spiritual bender and going off, off track and open 
openly rebelling against God. Actually, she's still trusting God to some degree. She believes that the Lord has prevented her from having children. So she surmises that maybe this is the, the route that she should go down. So it's not necessarily cynical sniping at God. What she says is true. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord has indeed prevented her from having children at this point. So this is a lady, I think, who believes God. But there is something important going on here which we need to pay attention to. She has faith in God, but she also has desires burning within her heart to see those promises fulfilled and to make them happen in her own way. So what does she do? Does she wait for God to bring it about in his good time? No, she turns to the wisdom of her culture. She turns to the wisdom of the day and says, that'll do, I'll use that thinking to push God's promises along a little bit. That's where we find a warning for us. The culture around us today has plenty of solutions for us. All kinds of things that you can buy off the shelf, that you can find on the TV, find on the internet. You can find any number of ways to achieve success, to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction in life, to find your soulmate, to raise your children. You can go out there into the culture. You can find all that information and you can bring it in and use it to your heart's content. And this is the constant temptation that that we face. To listen to the voices of the culture around us. To pay attention to what the world is saying. And at the same time, think to yourself, I'm still being a faithful Christian. I know the Lord is sovereign. I know the Lord knows what he's doing. I know the Lord keeps his promises. But then impulsively, to do something that actually is the world's wisdom. See? When, when somebody becomes a Christian... They don't come into the kingdom of God with their their hearts and their minds as a blank slate, do they? Actually, our minds and our hearts have written on them all kinds of ideas and ways of thinking from the world around us, which we've come from. So when we come into the kingdom of God, when we come into the, the church of Jesus Christ, when we're grafted into Christ, we don't come in as a blank slate, Uh, And sometimes those ways of thinking uh, and the attitudes of our hearts are so embedded in who we are and what we are that uh, we cannot recognize where they've come from. And so often what happens then is when a decision needs to be made in our lives, we rather assume that because we're Christians now, that what we decide is therefore the right thing to do. But the danger is that it can come from an unrenewed mind, an unrenewed mind that is shaped by those old, godless ways of thinking. You see? That's why Paul says to the Roman Christians in Romans 12:2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Sorry, I just realized that means something completely different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Re- renewal of your mind. Uh, and that by test, uh, and he said, goes on to say, so that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul is highlighting there is that Christians don't automatically come transformed. They need to be transformed. And the temptation is constantly to be conformed to the world around. That's what we see here in Sarai and Abram as well, I think. See, Sarai needed to pay constant attention to what God had said to her on previous occasions. And perhaps she needed to share more openly her concerns with her husband and her family and her friends rather than hatching, out what turns, hatching up what turns, to be a, turns out to be a crazy scheme to produce children, which really comes from the world around her. So the plan is for Abraham to sleep with Hagar and conceive a child. So you see here how it is, how our desires can collide with God's sovereignty and it leads us in the wrong direction. They lead us in the wrong direction. Here's the second thing. See how one sin leads to many sins. So here's what happens. Uh, Hagar conceives, uh, verse 4, gets pregnant, and what we see now in verses 3 to 6 is that one sin leads to many more sins. Uh, Sins rarely ever come in ones. They come in bunches, like grapes. <laughs> you don't buy a grape in the shop, you buy bunches of grapes. And sins come in bunches. And sins are not necessarily always restricted to the original sinner. They sometimes get spread to others as people get enlisted in your original sin. And you start involving other people in it. This is what happens here with Hagar. So, Hagar and Sarah. Because what happens then is uh, Hagar conceives. Hagar realizes she's pregnant. So what does she do? Uh, She looks at Sarah, her mistress, and gloats over her inability to conceive and looks at her own ability to conceive. And she's she's on the up. She's proud. She's happy. She looks down now on Sarah, even though she's a servant. And she says, I'm better than you. See the sin of pride suddenly appeared. And then another thing that happens is that Sarai, upset by the contempt, this contempt that she is experiencing from Hagar, goes to Abraham, and interestingly, she blames him. It's Sarai's idea, but Sarai now blames Abraham. And she says, May the wrong done to me be on you. It's all your fault. We might think that this outcome is actually predictable. Um, When you're driven by desires uh, and you park the idea of waiting on God, then uh, the thing that goes is wisdom and clear thinking. And that's what we're seeing here. Here's the third thing that happens uh, in this setting is, uh, is what happens to Abraham. Clearly, Abraham has already failed because, as verse 2 pointedly says, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. He shouldn't really have been listening to his wife. He should be trusting the promises of God. Uh, Now, of course, husbands generally ought to listen to their wives. Let me just 
put that on record. Husbands ought to listen to their wives. Uh, That's really important. And vice versa. But sometimes it's right to listen and then say, no, uh, God's word says this. And this is what Abraham should have done. But when the deed is done, now trouble begins to break out. Um, And what does Abraham do? Uh, Verse 6, behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. It's your problem, says Abraham. (laughs) You see the mess that's unfolding here? It's your problem. Here's the man of the house, the head of the house, not taking responsibility. And he can't see that he has a role to play in this. It's worth just saying in passing that we live in a culture where boys grow up to be men but still think of themselves as boys who want to play, who want to walk away from trouble and shirk responsibility. To a certain extent, that's what we're seeing here in Abram. Shirking responsibility. Abram, the man of faith. Abram, the friend of God. Just seems to shrug his shoulders Isn't it true? The best of men are only men at best. And then the last thing you notice here is that Sarai resorts resorts to harsh treatment. She is in a position of authority and power, and so she uses it to her advantage, and so she starts to bully and harass and abuse Hagar, her servant. That's an alarming warning, I think. Uh, two lives uh, that on the face of it seem to be trusting God. Hagar, uh, Sarah and Abram seem to be trusting God, yet are tempted to take matters into their own, own hands because it seems good at the time, but then suddenly there is sin everywhere. And everybody it looks bad. When you pick up a dandelion, as we shall do in the next few weeks, as spring comes upon us, you pick up the dandelion and you blow the seeds into the wind. It's fun and it's pretty and it looks fine, but then pretty soon you've got dandelions all over your garden. Sin is like that. It spreads. So failing to remember God's promises, failing to wait for God's timing, before you know it, sins abound. So there's a warning for us that we need to take on. But here's the third thing we need to notice from this passage. How God comes and cares for the defenseless and the weak. We see now the Lord in action. Everything has taken place without the Lord. He's just been mentioned in conversation. But now the Lord acts and we see him caring for the defenseless. Hagar is forced to flee under the pressure of harsh treatment. She's isolated, she's alone, she's homeless, wandering in the wilderness, and here the angel of the Lord appears to her. And he does so four times, uh, from verses 7 through to 14. Now who is this angel of the Lord? Well, it becomes clear in verse 13 that this angel of the Lord is in fact the Lord himself. So this is not simply a messenger sent like the archangel Gabriel who appeared to Mary, mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. Or Michael who appeared to Daniel. 
Rather, this is a manifestation of the Lord himself. Yahweh himself has appeared. But it's not the Lord in awesome power and majesty. Rather, you see, if if the Lord appears in all his power and his majesty, then no one can live, no one can survive, no sinner can stand before such a holy God. And so what we have here is a a manifestation accommodating to the the needs of the person in front of, of God. Hagar, the... Uh, The poor, defenseless, sinful woman. And it's what we call a a theophany, an appearance of God. Where God seems to take some form, probably the appearance of a man, we don't know. Uh, But we certainly know it is something that Hagar can see. And she can see that in the text. What I want to draw out from this is, is that God cares about the weak and the defenseless. For all her sin and her gloating, for all we know, you know, she didn't follow God until this account, encounter at all. She maybe didn't follow God at all. She didn't have trust God at all. But God comes in remarkable care for this woman. And it's completely in the character of God to do that kind of thing. He's always had a care for widows, for, uh, for orphans, for sojourners, for aliens, for travelers. People who have nothing. And who in the eyes of the rest of society are nothing. God has always been like that. You know, a major complaint that the Lord brings against his people, the people of Israel and Judah later on, many de- centuries later on in the book of Amos and other prophets, is that when a society rejects God, then the poor and the weak suffer at the hands of the rich and the powerful. And access to justice is hard to find. That's what we're seeing here in Hagar. But the Lord comes, and he cares for the poor. I think that's exemplified in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who comes in the image of his Father, Expressing his character, and he primarily comes. Who does he come to? Does he come to the righteous? Does he come to the religious leaders? No, he comes to the poor, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the poor of society. The very people ostracized by a self righteous society. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God in her need. And Hagar recognizes the Lord as the God of seeing. The God himself can see. The God sees me. The God sees my predicament. And he reveals himself to her and looks after her. Yes, gives her a hard commandment to go back. But he is with her. That's a great encouragement, I think, to any of us who are tempted to think, how could God possibly care about me? How could God possibly come in his grace to somebody who's sinned like me or done some terrible things in my life like I have? How can God do that? Well, you might think to yourself, I'm just too small and too insignificant for the great and mighty God to possibly want to come to me. I'm too far to be gone to be of interest to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. How does Paul describe the church of Corinth? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world. This is what the church has found down the centuries. That the greatest movements of God to bring people into the kingdom down the ages and all the various revivals that there have ever been, most of the time, it has happened amongst the poor. Because God shows mercy to the poor, the foolish, the weak of the world. So as we finish... We need to learn to wait and trust in the Lord who cares for sinners. There's a little epilogue here in verses 15 and 16. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Ishmael is born. Abram is a very old man. But note here, after all this, we're almost back to where we started. According to the Lord's words to Hagar, Ishmael is not the promised son. So Abraham is no further forward. He must go back to waiting on the Lord. And I think this is one of those examples where the Lord has made a promise to a man. But one by one, the Lord removes any possibility of him putting his trust in anything else. He has to wait a bit longer and wait on God. Sometimes our faith in a promise that God gives us is misguided and we listen to the culture for its fulfillment rather than waiting on God. And he has to sometimes take us to the point where we literally have nothing else to rest upon except him. And sometimes our faith is not in his promise at all. Uh, Rather, it's on a particular outcome, and we really latch on to a particular outcome. And we want God to give us that outcome. And in that case, our faith is not really in the God who gives, but rather in the gift. That's a subtle problem that Christians can have. We put our faith in an outcome, or a thing, a gift from God, instead of waiting on God himself. In that case, the Lord is asking us that whatever the outcome, will you trust me in the midst of it? Is having me enough for you? Are you willing to wait for me in all the circumstances of your life? How we need to learn to wait on God here in Soleil Presbyterian Church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. We see ourselves as poor sinners who have been touched by your grace and we have experienced your kindness to us. Oh Lord, we pray. You train us in godliness that we may wait upon you and discover that in your good time you fulfill all your promises as you have said. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.